Welcome to another edition of Cybersecurity Dispatch. This is your host, Andy Anderson. In this episode, A Postcard from the Future, we talk with Dr. Ron Ross, a cyber rock star and member of the Cybersecurity Hall of Fame. I'm truly humbled to have him on the show, and it has been one of my favorite conversations so far. We spoke just after NIST released a draft of the new cyber resiliency framework, which gives an incredibly lucid and compelling versions of how systems can be designed to move beyond not just being secure, but to be resilient, to survive, to respond and adapt. Do not think it's an understatement that this document will chart the future of cyber defense, likely for the next decade. My name is Ron Ross. I work at the National Institute of Standards and Technology, and my particular division is the Computer Security Division. Our basic mission is to produce security standards and guidelines for the federal government, and a lot of the folks in the private sector are choosing to use our guidance because of the protection things that we espouse are are really equally applied to the private sector systems as well as those that are in the federal government. So it's a really exciting place to work, and this is a very exciting time to live in with all of the new technologies that we're experiencing. And of course, we have an incredibly difficult and challenging problem ahead of us in this country. We take advantage of the great technology to the maximum extent, whether we're talking about smartphones or we're talking about tablets or those devices that are in your house now that can listen to your to your requests and they can actually make things happen. And I think we're at this point in time to include the autonomous vehicles that we're seeing now and all the automation going into medical devices. We're living in an exciting time and we're seeing the full uh, convergence of cyber and physical systems. And that's a pretty important thing. A lot of people hear the term Internet of Things. And uh, to me, that's described by one simple phrase. We're, we're pushing computers to the edge today. And, and, and that edge can be everything from power plants to Wall Street financial systems to Fortune 500 companies, tech companies out in the Silicon Valley. We're pushing computers into medical devices. And almost any place, uh, sensors, uh, you know, the typical new automobile has little dozens of computers millions of lines of code, and those, uh, all of those computers are helping to bring greater safety to the car and all the sensors that control the braking system and all the critical navigation systems. So it's just a great time. But the central issue that we have to deal with in this new world that we're building is the issue of complexity. We're literally talking about billions of lines of code and millions and hundreds of millions of devices, billions of devices in the Internet of Things, and all these things are hooked up together through the internet in many cases, and uh, that's what we've been dealing with. So how do we deal with all that complexity when we have to understand very clear-eyed that we have adversaries out there that want to steal our intellectual property, they would like to steal our national secrets, and we have to deal in the world where the technology can benefit us, we can take maximum advantage of it to be productive, have a strong economy, a strong military, but at the same time, how do we protect ourselves in cyberspace? And that's really what the NIST standards and guidelines are focusing on starting in 2018 and beyond. We have a series of publications that we talk about a system security engineering. How do we build security and privacy, for that matter, into the life cycle? The analogy I use is the automobile industry. My first car, and this goes back a long, long time ago. I just had my 67th birthday, so... My first car barely had a seatbelt, and then, of course, we had airbags, and for many years, they were optional. 
I mean, you could have a choice between the airbag or the eight-track tape. That's where we used to listen to music back uh, in the 70s. But eventually, the airbags became standard equipment, and then there were steel-reinforced doors, and then there were things, improvements for the engine compartment. And then we had, in current modern automobiles, we have all of those sensors and safety systems. So those things get built into the automobile, and the objective is to make a safer car. So if you are in an accident, the damage to the vehicle and to you as a, uh, as a driver or a passenger is minimized. Yeah. And that's the same thing we're trying to do with our system security engineering publications, is to try to put out guidance that industry, when they build IT components or systems, or if you're on the federal side and you're, you're letting contracts and for new systems, we can have a greater level of assurance that the trustworthiness we need in those systems, especially if you go into critical applications and things that have to work under stress, we can get that level of trustworthiness. And it doesn't happen automatically. You have to work to get better security and privacy features into these systems. So that's kind of what we're doing with the engineering work. And in the most recent publication, we followed our flagship engineering guidance document, which was the 800-160 Volume 1. That was in 2016. We recently put out for public review most of our documents. In fact, almost every document we put out goes through a public vetting process. And we just published volume two a couple of weeks ago on cyber resiliency. And what we're really trying to do there is to say, not only do we want to build security into these systems at the start of the life cycle and, and actually all the way through the life cycle, but what do we do when we have systems? Most of our systems are already deployed. They're, they're in operation out there. 95% uh, of our systems or more are legacy or installed base. What do we do with those systems and how do we make sure they're as resilient as they need to be? And so the idea there is that you do the best you can to put up a set of defenses, whether you're using the classic safeguards of two-factor authentication or encryption or access controls, whatever it might be. But what happens when the adversaries get through that initial line of defense? And we know that happens because we have a lot of evidence that even people who do this right can get hit at the opportune time for the adversary. So what do you do when you can't stop them at the front door? You harden the target first. And then the next objective is to try to limit the damage the adversary can do once they're inside. And that's been a very sad story because you heard everything from the OPM breach where we lost 22 and a half million records. There's story after story about breaches that occur, and they don't just get a little data. They get a lot of data. So we can do better than that. And the cyber resiliency objectives in our new publication, 80160 Volume 2, they talk about the goals and objectives of having a cyber resilient system, and they can even be applied to legacy systems. And then what kind of techniques and approaches can you actually use that can be effective to help make those systems more resilient, limiting the damage and making sure that they're survivable so you can carry out your critical missions and business functions after the attack has occurred. And so that's kind of what we're trying to do. It's really a clear-eyed view of reality and understanding there are very sophisticated threats out there. We call those the advanced persistent threat, where they try to get in to your system, establish a long-term presence, and then continue to steal information from you. And that could be anything from you know the next generation design of the military aircraft, or it could be some kind of cutting-edge technology from Silicon Valley that they're working on for the tech industry. And this ends up being kind of all going back to one central idea. You have to defend yourself in cyberspace in order to have a strong economy and be able to defend the country because those things are all tied together. 
you can't have this massive amount of bleed of intellectual property and state secrets, part of the national security community, and survive long term as a country. And that's why we're so passionate about this work. And we have a lot of different tools now that our customers within the federal government can use. And also the private sector has access to those same tools and guidelines and standards uh, that they can use on a voluntary basis. So big problem. We've had challenges like this before. I recall back in the 60s when we had the, we were in the old that missile race with the old Soviet Union back yeah. in those days, and, and President Kennedy had a very famous speech that challenged the country. He said, we're going to go to the moon, and we're going to do other things by the end of this decade, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. That was in 1961 when that missile race was going hot and heavy. And eight short years later, 1969, July the 20th, we landed our first man on the moon. And the important thing about that story is is that when the president challenged the country, uh, he didn't just challenge the government. He challenged uh, three, I call this the essential partnership. It's the government, industry, the academic community. That's when NASA was born, and that's when we had this incredible coming together with the best and the brightest minds in the academic community, fueled by industry who could actually take those ideas and build those huge rockets and the and the, the spacecraft and the Mercury program and the Gemini and the Apollo and then the shuttle. And the government was providing some leadership and some direction and had the vision of where we had to go to meet that existential threat. I don't think today that people view cyber threats as existential, largely because they fly below the radar. You really can't see them. When people are stealing things from you, when that uh, rootkit has been installed in your operating system and you think everything's going just fine, but they're stealing stuff from you every day, most of these attacks occur and we don't discover them for a long time. And they can do a lot of damage in you know a couple of minutes versus six, eight months or even a year or sometimes two years before those that malicious code is detected. So if you can't see it, it's kind of flying below the radar. And that's the real danger, I think, to the country is that we, we're, it's not, it isn't like a kinetic attack in the World Trade Center or the Pentagon on 9-11 where you could see the actual destruction and damage. Well, a lot of this stuff's going on in the invisible space of computers. And it's, you know, it's a lot of geek speak and a lot of things that you know, most average folks are not going to be, they don't need to know all that stuff, but yet they do need to know how important the failure to act and to defend ourselves in cyberspace. What are the net long-term effects of that? And so that's kind of why we do what we do. Yeah. I mean, you know, so much there and sort of jumping up and down in the background, because I think so much that I agree with, I think just to sort of take a few steps back, I'd love to just start with kind of the different view of cyber resiliency versus sort of cybersecurity, right? Because I think in the in volume two, you start to sort of lay some of those ideas out. But for those, we'll get a sort of a teaser for that document. What are those sort of factors that are, you know, different, makes resiliency different from security? Well, I think the major difference to me is that there's an assumption. See, for, for many years, the cybersecurity community had this idea of our strategy was penetration resistance, harden the target, stop them at the front door. And that was what we did. And you tried to rely on on deploying the strongest mechanisms and safeguards that you possibly could. And there were a lot of people that thought, you know, in the early days, we, we can stop these folks, you know, totally. Well, we discovered that, and this got worse with the complexity of systems. As complexity grew, the job of protection grew harder. You, you can probably remember in the early days of antivirus protection that, you know, some of the vendors made claims they would stop 95% of the malicious code. Well, that number dropped precipitously because it wasn't that they weren't doing a good job in developing the signatures for the 
malicious code that they were discovering. It's just that the growth rate of the malicious code and the malware was outstripping their ability to write the signature. So they had to come up with new techniques to enhance the signature-based um, antivirus type of products that were being produced. So it, it very quickly we learned, and this comes from empirical data because you can see what people are doing. Now, sometimes people don't do a good enough job in what I call the blocking and tackling of cybersecurity. We know the fundamental things that we should be doing. Sometimes they don't get done, and that's where the attacks typically start at the low-hanging fruit. But for me, it was more interesting to look at the people who were doing this well and still getting hit. And that was really what makes the cyber resiliency a little bit different than the classic cybersecurity, because it assumes that you're going to have some things happen. And I guess I took a, a page from the military playbook. You know, the military develops their battle plans. I was in the Army for 20 years, and, and you always have a battle plan that you develop, and then that plan rarely survives the first day of combat operations yeah. because you're working against a, a determined adversary. And when they do something, you have to react. Well, the same thing holds true. The notion of static defenses, I think, is now gone by the wayside because we have to realize that our systems are in a constant state of evolution. They're getting more complicated, and adversaries are going to be coming at us 24-7 with different techniques and tactics and, and procedures that they use. And so we have to figure out ways to be more clever than they are. I think I use the term, you want to be able to operate on your terms and not on their terms. And we want to have the tactical advantage instead of them giving them the tactical advantage. So resiliency, cyber resiliency means you've got to do things that are not traditional. And so some of those things would, were, are kind of obvious, but the one that I thought was kind of interesting was that when, when malicious code first makes its way into a system, one of the bad things that happens if you're not uh, paying attention to the architecture and the engineering of how your systems are constructed, the malicious code can spread from one part of the system to another, and then it can actually go from one system to another. We call this a transitive attack, and the adversary can keep on kind of hopping until they get to the target of opportunity when they find it. Yeah. So, you know, cyber resiliency would say, well, okay, what happens if I quarantine that malicious code? And, and maybe I want to observe that. Maybe I want to let them get a little ways into the system, but not all the way. And I want to see what they do when they get there. You want to observe what they're doing because you're more interested in, in developing countermeasures for what they're tactics and techniques and procedures might be. On the other hand, people would say, no, as soon as I understand they're there, I'm going to re-image the system. I'm going to flush that part and I'm going to start with a clean image. And so there are ways to approach the problem when you know that they're going to be there eventually. And then the question is, how do you limit the damage they can do? Another thing that a cyber resilient system may have, and a lot of this goes back to the architecture and the engineering things that you do to make that a stronger system. A lot of databases are in flat files. The databases are, are huge and they're all in one place. And so if there is a compromise, the adversary not only can get that first record, they can get the last record. And that could be as many as 22 and a half million as we saw in the case of OPM or any of these large you know, databases. So a strategy in the cyber resiliency world would be, let's separate our data and only make data available on a real-time basis or a near-real-time basis to our people who need that to do their job for the tasks they're doing today or in the very limited capacity. Because if there is a cyber attack and they get that data, that's not good, but at least it's not the entire treasure trove of, of corporate information that could be highly critical or sensitive or intellectual property. So you, you can build these things called security domains where you move the information, the data, the most sensitive to a more secure domain 
just like you do in a safe deposit box where you have some things in your house that are, you have a lot of important stuff in your house and you have locks on your doors and maybe your windows, but you don't necessarily have a strong enough um, security system to prevent professional burglars from getting in and stealing things like jewelry or, or coin collections or whatever. So you get a safe deposit box, separate domain, a much stronger domain. You got to go to the bank. You got to get into the vault. You got to open it with the two keys, and it's much more safe for those really critical possessions that you have. So there's things like that that are different in the cyber resiliency realm. Uh, we talk about deception and things like that. It's almost like when you're reading the document and you read some of the terminology, it looks seems strange in a cybersecurity context to be talking about those things, but we really take those things from a lot of the the things that have been around for many, many years, but not necessarily applied to our, our systems, but they do work in a larger context of defense and, and defense in depth and those kinds of things. So Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's partly a, a maturation of the space overall. You know, you're sort of seeing the length of time that we've been sort of thinking about cyber conflicts is not as long as we've been thinking about other other forms of conflict and other forms of sort of engineering and protection and, and sort of intelligently designed systems. Right. Uh, and so it, it, it's interesting to sort of see that. And I think, you know, having read the document, I was sort of, you walk through kind of these 14 different techniques that underlie resiliency. And, and it seems like, I hope I'm not sort of taking words out of your mouth, but it seems like they group, they get grouped into, into a couple of categories. One is kind of diversity, right? Like having segmentation and, and differences across your system. And then deception would be sort of another overarching kind of category of some of those techniques. And then the third would be sort of change in dynamism in terms of like time and space and whatnot. Can you walk, for those who kind of haven't read the document yet or haven't thought about it, walk through those sort of three categories and how you think they sort of play together. Yeah, well, I, I just want to go back and use an analogy first, and, and then yeah. we'll, we'll go through each of those and try to say a few things about each one of those. I think in general, I look at cyber resiliency for systems kind of like the human body. If you look at the, the human's immune system, we have a tremendously powerful immune system and, and fairly complicated immune system. And when bad things are introduced to your system, whether it's a cold or a, a disease that's more compelling, your immune system goes into action and, and tries to isolate the problem and, and fix the problem. Now, it works most of the time. In fact, it's amazing how, how well it does work. But occasionally, your immune system is going to be up against an adversary that may be too powerful. For example, the cancer cells in many cases, your immune system can deal with a very low level of cancer cells, but eventually when those things start to multiply and they have a certain doubling rate, they will overwhelm the immune system. And that's why, you know, we're still looking for the, the big cure for cancer. Um, so the systems can act the same way. It may never be possible to protect these systems to an absolute 100% degree of certainty where you have that high level of assurance because they are so complicated. But the same as the body, you know, we, we can apply these resiliency techniques to a large degree and be very successful at reducing our susceptibility to a devastating cyber attack by limiting the damage that can actually be done and, and actually making, just like the human body, become it, it is resilient and it, it's survivable in many cases. That's the analogy we're trying to use with the guidance in this document. So can you go ahead and give me those three categories again, maybe one at a time, and I'll, I'll try to address each one of those. Yeah, sort of diversity, right? Like, you know, just the way, you know, that there's genetic diversity in populations, right? That's, that's a value to sort of stopping diseases and whatnot. So, so diversity seems like one of the categories that, that touches on a couple of those different techniques. 
Right. So, I mean, the diversity can be used. That's a pretty important characteristic and a technique. And there are a lot of ways to achieve that. But just think uh, about this. Um, there's a lot of discussion today in enterprises where, you know, we're moving to the cloud in a lot of cases or from a systems administration point of view, uh, most sysadmins would rather deal with all Windows systems versus, you know, a combination of Windows systems and Linux systems and, you know, maybe uh, Apple systems, iOS, and the different operating systems. They want to have a, a homogeneous base of stuff because it's easier to do administration on it. But think about that. That, that lack of diversity can be a single point of failure. So if you've got one particular vulnerability that is uh, a Windows system is discovered, let's say, in a zero day, and that exploit is launched against an organization, not only will it bring down that particular you know, workstation or device, but it, it can propagate, and that same vulnerability will occur in every one of those homogeneous elements across the entire system and maybe system of systems. So diversity, and we talk about this a lot, it, it can be more complicated for the sysadmins, but that lack of a single, that lack of homogeneity can be a, a benefit because, you know, having a heterogeneous network of a mix and match of things it can be very beneficial because a single attack is not necessarily going to be successful because these systems are different in that respect. And every one of those components where it's different may provide a little bit of time or, or lack of um, totality of the devastation that could happen. So we see that a lot. There there's scanning tools, another example, or antivirus products. A lot of organizations will not just deploy one particular vendor's antivirus product, but they will deploy several, or they'll use different types of scanning tools because they're all built a little bit differently. They all have kind of different scopes, if you will, of what they can see and what they can feel and touch as they're doing their work in the scanning space. And that, again, uh, that diversity is good because you're going to pick up things. It's like having more people, more eyes on target. This is a simple example is when you have, when you're um, writing a document like we do at NIST and we have people that look at that from a tech editing point of view or our reviewers during our public review period, just think about all the people out there that look at our documents and provide us public comments. You know, there, there's a lot of diversity People are really smart. They're looking at the document from a different perspective. And, and all of that diversity and, and diversity of comments and opinions is going to come into us and we can make a stronger uh, document based upon that. So diversity is one of those things that's really important. And it may be a little more expensive sometimes to do that. But again, when you look at the expense of applying cyber resiliency techniques, and we say this in the document, every organization is going to be a little bit different in how they do that because you have corporate missions and business objectives that you're trying to achieve. You have budgets you have to live within, and you have to always kind of weigh those in a, in a risk-based decision-making process. How much do I need? How much is going to make me more effective? And if I spend another 10% or 20%, does it get me any closer to being more cyber resilient? And those are trade-offs that are made every day within organizations. So that's a little yeah. bit about diversity, and then you can go to the next category. I, yeah, so the second was sort of deception, right? So that, that idea, which is not something that, I mean, it's been in favor and kind of went out of favor and now sort of back in favor a little bit in, in the sort of cybersecurity community. Yeah, I missed what you said. I was getting a call and I missed what you said. Uh, when, no, 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 no. Uh, deception kind of as a, as a strategy and, and all of its different formats, right? Yeah, deception. I mean, a lot of people um, may, may kind of raise their eyebrows at that, but Deception has always been important. And, of course, it's it's important in, in the kinetic world of warfighting, obviously. Yeah. But deception in systems can also be important because when the adversaries come in, 
they're looking for the target of opportunity. They have they have something in mind. Uh, sometimes they'll come in and just kind of do uh, window shopping and see what's available. But a lot of times they understand what's in that system and what they want to get out of that system. So there are ways to implement, uh, you know, kind of deception databases that appear to be one thing and maybe the data is cor- yeah. intentionally corrupted. So if they get to that target, they, they take the, what they think is the good data out and they're getting really corrupted data. And there's those kinds of things that can really delay and confuse the adversary as to what they're getting and how much trust can they put in that data that they're getting. So, you know, one of the things that's interesting about all of these resiliency techniques is I was looking, you know, we our documents are posted publicly, so our adversaries have access to the same things that we do. Mm. And there's been a debate for a long, long time about, you know, publishing all this stuff in the open because, you know, you're you're giving your playbooks away to everybody, the bad guys and the good guys. But we've always made the decision to err on the side of providing maximum guidance to our customers so they can defend themselves whether it's the federal agencies or whether it's our our customers who are in the private sector who are using our our guidance on a voluntary basis. But, you know, that playbook on cyber resiliency, now they know, the adversaries know that all of these things are possible. So in some sense, they may plant that little seed saying, okay, I got all this data, but, you know, am I in a, a deception net here? Is this the real stuff? Or it just plants that seed of doubt. And sometimes that's all you need to do. You bring every possible tool technique, strategy, tactic, approach to make it absolutely as difficult as you can make it on the on the bad guys to get into to your stuff. Because our stuff is valuable and it can be valuable for national security purposes. It can be valuable for economic security. Or just a, just a, the, I mentioned earlier the strong economy and our, our great R&D community that does a, a huge investment in R&D. So that deception and all those, the techniques and approaches and things there are not used a lot. Like you said, they were talked about uh, years ago. And what we're saying is now, don't rule out any one of these things because sometimes when you bring in a combination of the cyber resiliency techniques to achieve some of the objectives that we talk about in combination, the benefit has a, a kind of a, a multiplier effect. Each one of these things individually, maybe not that effective, but when you have many of these deploy these techniques and approaches, they kind of have reinforcing characteristics to them. So that's why I like deception. It's a good uh, good strategy that you can bring forward. Yeah, I think I, I was reading the, I didn't get a chance to go to Synet, but I was reading the notes from it. And, and that was sort of one of the key themes that I think came out of the most recent one was right. that deception was those who had begun using it, perhaps again, were surprised by both its minimal cost and effectiveness. Right. As, a, as a strategy. Uh, and then the last, I mean, each of them are somewhat tied, but I think dynamism or just the idea of like changing the underlying system uh, yeah, you know, that's, in terms of, go ahead. Sure. That's an important one. Dynamic reconfiguration and things to, are important. So if you assume that the adversary is going to get in some point, then you're going to have a system that's corrupted. And the level of corruption really depends on the malicious code. Uh, the, we, we've seen adversaries try to insert themselves throughout the entire stack of the system. And when I talk about system stack, I mean from application to middleware to operating system down to the firmware. The basic input-output system is an example of the firmware that boots up the operating system. And then down into the integrated circuits, into the supply chain. That, that's the ultimate. Now, the lower they get in the stack, the more control they have. So if an adversary is able to establish a rootkit within your system. They have complete control of the operating system. 
then everything above that really is subject to be to to be questioned and, and is untrustworthy. So dynamic reconfiguration, or we, you may have heard the term. I use an, I like to use analogies. So in the old days, when you bought a laptop computer, you would get the master disks with that laptop, and then you could go back and re-image the operating system if you got a some malicious code into your system, you could actually reinstall the operating system and bring it back to the factory state. And, and sometimes you can still do that. if you. It, a lot of it's done online now through downloading and, and the original master disk, but we call that re-imaging. So the idea is that adversaries can do damage in two, two ways. We, we limit the damage by limiting their movement laterally across the system or from system to system. We talked about that earlier. But we can also limit the damage they do by limiting the time they have on target. So just visualize if an adversary is in your system for seven months or three months, they can do an awful lot of damage. If they're only in there for minutes or an hour, you know, you reduce that window of time to exploit. And we can do that with a couple of techniques, dynamic reconfiguration. We can re-image certain components. There's some, the virtualization is an example of that. When you bring up a new virtual machine, you're bringing up a clean image, so to speak, of that virtual machine operating on top of a hypervisor. And we have, there, there's some new techniques now that are, that are currently being explored called micro-virtualization, where you basically are churning the infrastructure so fast that even if the adversary gets in, they don't have time to do damage. And there's a whole bunch of things you can do in that, under that umbrella of uh, dynamic reconfiguration as opposed to a static view. You're making it hard for the adversary to understand the environment that they're working in or the environment collapses around them so quickly that they can't take any time to do damage. So that's another thing that's here. We, we have that technology now, and, and I think I predict in the future that the cybersecurity problems will become a whole lot less daunting because these kinds of virtualization techniques and dynamic reconfigurations will be just part of the way the systems are developed and and how they're brought forward into an organization. So there's a lot of hope. We're not there yet, obviously, because we still have most of our systems are highly exposed and highly vulnerable to a lot of these bad attacks. Yeah, I mean, you're preaching to the choir on the virtualization stuff. That's what kind of, when I'm not running the podcast, that's where I spend most of my time and the applications of it are and of course, manifold. We didn't talk a whole um, lot about, you know, the adversary compromising the supply chain. And it's not always bad guys that, you know, when, when you're designing a new chipset or a new software, a lot of these vulnerabilities get surfaced during the development process. There are weaknesses and deficiencies in the code or in the design of the chip that can later be exploited. I mean, you were familiar with that recent thing uh, with the Intel chips and uh, the operating yep. systems and all that and the vulnerabilities that were discovered there. Well, those things have been around a long time. And when we discover those or when they become public, they are now you're worried about the attack surface that makes uh, those particular weaknesses and deficiencies visible to the adversary because weaknesses and deficiencies that can't be exploited. Those aren't really vulnerabilities, but we worry yeah. about the ones that can, can be targeted by the adversaries, and then they become vulnerabilities we have to deal with at some point. Yeah, and I think, you know, just to switch gears, I think that's an interesting point that you bring up and something that, you know, I, I have a lot of conversations about is, and you touch on it, you know, you started this conversation with thinking about, you know, the majority of those legacy systems aren't going to be replaced, right, in the near term, like 95% of the stuff is not necessarily new. And I think that there's this one of the challenges I, that I think about and talk about a lot is that 
you know, the equipment, you know, whether those are cars or power generation or military equipment, right? The usable life of it is measured in decades, whereas sort of IT infrastructure or sort of computing is measured in a matter of, you know, several years. And so you've got this sort of disconnect in terms of the life cycle. Walk us through kind of how you think about, and one of the ways that I've heard talked about is, is to use some of the virtualization pieces to, at that interface to sort of wrap and protect the older, potentially more vulnerable systems with newer, more modern stuff. So that you've yeah, got I, think, the, I think you can do that. I mean, there's all kinds of engineering and architectural things that you can do with virtualization to create those kind of wrappers. And that may be the best technique to use in the near term. But I think a lot of these systems, I think the good news is that you mentioned the life cycle. These systems do churn at a pretty high rate. We're seeing yeah. a lot of the, maybe the whole system doesn't go away, but it's kind of mm-hmm. like the old B-52 bomber. That's been around for right. over 60 years, I believe now. And, and it's still flying. It's older than all the pilots that, that were that are flying, yeah. sure. But the idea is that that's the same aircraft is hit the streets 50, 60 years ago. You know, it's been totally, it's in a constant state of evolution. They're redoing the electrical system and all the computers and things inside. And, you know, the, the exterior gets a workover and, and they, they make engineering changes to that aircraft. And it looks like the same aircraft as when they first rolled out, but it really isn't inside. All the guts have been taken out. So that's kind of what happens with our systems. They never really go away, but you know, you're upgrading the operating system or you're bringing in new network components or, you know, firewalls, whatever the component might be, the new software applications. So there is an opportunity over time. And this is why we published the 8160 Engineering Guideline, Volume 1, is to tell our customers, look, when, when you've got a legacy system that you're upgrading or you're buying a new system, you need to make sure that you start having the discussions about security and privacy at the very first process step in that life cycle where the mission and business analysis is taking place. What is our core mission? What's our business? What are we, what's our opportunities here? What's the, you know, what do we have to, what's the critical things we have to do for our customers? And then very quickly, the stakeholders get to weigh in knowing that they're going to be using this very powerful technology to accomplish their missions and their business functions. They now have to understand that their success, it really depends on those system components and systems being dependable. And that doesn't happen without inserting themselves into the life cycle process. So those discussions can take place in the trade space dialogue because every system has all the functional things it has to do. And then you layer into that all the security requirements and privacy requirements. Those things have to be traded off because you never get everything you want in the system. And that includes the security stuff. There's going to be those kind of risk-based decisions. Problem today is that the stakeholders are not involved in that process early enough. So the systems go forward in the development cycle, and a lot of the security requirements never get discussed, or you don't have an opportunity to do the trade space discussions that, it, that engineers always do during the requirements engineering process. Part of that's the, that's the heart of the life cycle. And so you end up with systems that are largely indefensible. They can't be defended because you didn't take the time to build those critical security features into each of the critical components or the, the pieces of the system and the stack that are necessary. But I do agree that um, we can bring a lot of this into 
a temporary state of, of goodness by doing some of the things you mentioned with virtualization and, and wrappers and, and trying to shield that more vulnerable, those more vulnerable system components until we can actually make them stronger and more resilient over time. But the life cycle will take care of this. The natural evolution of technology through enterprises will take care of this problem. The question I have is, is it going to happen quickly enough before, you know, we have a, a self-destructing moment here? Because just think how highly dependent we are on all these computer systems that are in the energy sector and the power plants and all that. And we really don't know what we don't know as far as the level of penetration of our adversaries in the infrastructure where you can pre-position malicious code and not pull the trigger until that opportune moment. And so those are the things that really keep a lot of people up at night who are a lot smarter than I am. And I just... Uh, <laughs> But I worry about it too. So, you know, just we have a lot of people who are trying to bring our, our, our best and our A game to this problem space. Well, I think, I mean, I think certainly what the work that you've been doing is hugely impactful because I, you know, I do sort of see it as the, you know, the two sides of the coin, right? You know, from a security on one side and resiliency on the other. And really, if you are only thinking about one, you're, you know, you're missing half the picture, right? And I think, when you start to add that resiliency, that then you start to get a much more complete kind of picture. And, and like you talked about, thinking through beyond that moment of breach, right? It's not just how do we stop a breach, but what happens after it? How do we recover? How do we sort of respond? And, and it's interesting that you, you brought up the power space because the day after I was going to see you at Billington, I went to a conference um, for power, particularly in the distribution side. And I think that industry... You know, I was struck by almost what maybe the approach that that industry has taken to sort of natural disasters and thinking how they respond to those, you know, may also sort of inform how we think about cybersecurity. Because I think that, you know, no one thinks that we're going to not have hurricanes and doesn't think that we can completely stop or prevent them. But, you know, you change building standards. There's a, there's a whole sort of process that has been in place to respond, recover, survive those. And from a, in the kinetic space, I think that's a, an interesting kind of, I'd be curious to your sort of thoughts on that analogy and, and what's happening in the cyber. That's cyber a good yeah, I think it, it's a very good analogy because it, it reflects a clear-eyed view of the problem that we're facing in, in that kinetic space. There, there are hurricanes going to always happen. There are going to be power outages. And of course, the resilient part of the power sector, you know, it, it's a lot of different discussions you can have, but I know a lot of the new developments that are being built, the power lines are underground, so they're not susceptible to those trees coming yeah. down during ice storms and things like that. But as far as the, the threat space is fairly broad, it, it can cover everything from natural disasters to cyber attacks to just good old-fashioned failures of, of yeah. devices that, that happen occasionally. Uh, and then there's errors of omission and commission that come with the software development community in general. So, you know, it's pretty important. If nothing more, 80160 Volume 2, we want to have a national dialogue. We want to start this conversation. I have this with a lot of my military friends when I asked them when I was in the Army. We used to use Map and Compass when we were navigating around in, in the wilderness. But today they have GPS. And I said, what happens when the GPS goes down? You know, what's the backup? And you can ask that question not just for that, but for any organization who relies on information technology and, and high tech today. What's the backup plan? We devote a whole family of controls in our security control catalog to contingency planning. And a lot of that is ignored 
you know, people focus on the, the stuff that they think is the most important, like the access control mechanisms or encryption or two-factor. But again, taking the view of 8160 Volume 2 and cyber resiliency, you start out under the assumption that there's going to be a breach and some kind yeah. of a fear event. And to me, it's a pretty important question of what are we going to do? And when you get the blank stare back, that, that's a, you get that a lot because I don't think people have thought, thought through this because we've been so focused on the technology. It's almost like an addiction or it's so compelling that it's kind of given us this huge blind spot because everyone loves their smartphone and the hundreds of apps that are just yeah. awesome. But, you know, when you press that little button, when you download that app from on your smartphone and it says, hey, this app needs access to 55 things, press yes. Well, nobody has a <laughs> what that app is really getting access to because you just don't have the, the visibility below the line, so to speak. It's below, it's not on your radar. Yeah. And I think that's an important discussion. We've got to figure out, you know, do I want to have a world that is highly functional and has all this great high-tech stuff and whiz-bang gadgets, but yet is so untrustworthy that I can't be sure that someone can't take us down with, you know, a well-placed asymmetric cyber attack. You know, that's the kind of stuff I think as a nation we have to really be focused on because critical infrastructure is not just a name. It actually is critical for the survival of the country, whether it's energy, the financial systems, the first responders, all of those things in the 18 critical sectors are important, and that's why they've been deemed uh, critical. So we're going to have to do a little bit of soul searching and find that. I call it a balance point. We all like the tech, but do I need all that stuff? Am I willing to pull back a little to make sure I can get a more trustworthy component or system? It, it can't do everything. We have a, a joke in my old organization I used to work at called the trusted garage door opener. It only does one thing. It opens your garage door and closes it, but it does it with a high degree of trustworthiness and assurance. In other words, it's never going to fail because that software is a small amount of code. It's highly trusted. It's built with secure coding techniques. And I use that as an example of how you can design things that are highly trustworthy, have a high degree of assurance, but you're not going to be able to do 10,000 things on that device. One of the things that in the military systems, in the B-1 bomber, it has an operating system, actually, and it's not Windows, surprisingly enough. It's a small kernel-based operating system that's much simpler and has a higher degree of assurance, and they put that operating system there because the complexity of having something like a Windows, it wasn't appropriate for a weapon system, especially yeah. one of the tactical fighters. So those are design decisions that we're going to have to make and confront. And unless as consumers, we understand the problem first and are engaged, then as good consumers, we can push industry to making more trustworthy components and systems and services that we all depend on. It's going to be a I call this the essential partnership, going back again, industry, government, and the academic community. We're all in this together. And the common denominator goes back to one simple thing, computers that are driven by software and firmware. And, you know, if those are going into cyber physical systems and things we care about, I think we need to have a discussion about how trustworthy should those things actually be. Yeah, and I think you don't have to be reading the sort of trade press or sort of be immersed in the space for it to be kind of on your radar screen, perhaps like it never has been before in the last couple of weeks with whether that's Cambridge Analytics and Facebook and oh, you know, yeah. even places like Atlanta and Baltimore getting kind of, you know, ransomware. It's just, it seems like it's just reaching at least, you know, when my 95-year-old grandmother asked me about, you know, what's going on, 
I know it's sort of reached another level. Just as we sort of close and, you know, thank you so much for taking the time. How do we make sure that the work that you guys have done in this document kind of gets out broadly? What's the kind of what's the ways that that happens and what are the sort of impediments to it? Well, we have, I I characterize all the standards and guidelines we produce. They're not regulations and they're not mandatory for the private sector, obviously, but we'd like people, first of all, to have some visibility to the general guidance that we're publishing in these important areas. And that's not to say that everybody has to be a system security engineer, but even people who are in the C-suite, the CEOs and the CFOs and the CIOs and all those folks, just knowing that there is guidance out there that deals with cyber resiliency or system security through an engineering-based approach, or even our cybersecurity framework, which was published in 2014, that's starting to be adopted across the country, but but it's a high-level framework. Eventually, We have to engage industry as consumers, and we want to treat our information systems the same expectation we have for bridges and airplanes. When you get in an airplane and you fly from point A to point B, I think most people have the expectation that that plane is going to get from point A to point B safely. Same thing when you cross a bridge. And the reason we have that level of confidence and assurance is because those bridges and airplanes are designed with best practices in engineering, math and science and physics and all the things that are, you know, good materials. That's what gives us that confidence. We want to have that same type of discussion with industry so we can get that same level of confidence in the systems, especially the critical systems and applications that we're all using. So I think understanding the threat space is kind of job one for everybody. Understanding what is out there to help make it better and then taking that knowledge and understanding how it can actually make your organization better and what you have to do. There's almost a supply and a demand part of this problem. I've talked to a lot of industry folks and they say, well, you know, the federal government may talk a lot about trustworthiness and assurance, but we don't see it in any policy or there's no regulation or there's nothing that makes industry comply with these with these things. And, and that's just the way our country works. We, we value the free market. There are certain things that are regulated. The energy sector is one of those, nuclear power plants, and that's one big example. But for the most part, we want to encourage industry to use some of these techniques and concepts to improve their products for their customers. And that's kind of a win-win for everybody. I, a vendor that can substantially improve the security or trustworthiness of their products they're offering to their customers, I believe that can be a market differentiator. But the customers have to value that as well. The industry is not just going to do that if the customers don't demand it on the other side. So there's kind of a supply and demand issue here, and it's a question of who's going to go first. So in the, in the federal government, we have the ability through our and our um, things that we produce coming out of OMB to make statements about the valuing trustworthiness. It's a value proposition. And so you may see some of those things starting to emerge uh, in 2018 where we start to talk about the value proposition of having trustworthy components and systems in the federal government and in our uh, places in the critical infrastructure where those things really can make a difference. But without that demand and the supply curve kind of meeting at the same time, uh, it can be difficult to, to get this thing off uh, off the you know ground zero, so to speak. Yeah. I mean, I, I think you certainly have set a great sort of standard and and sort of beginning for adoption of these ideas and and to start to kick off the conversation and you know my background is not an engineering background but was was able to follow this document throughout and so I look forward to kind of diving into the others as well and would certainly 
recommend even, you know, if you're running a major organization or anywhere involved, this is, this is something you should be digesting for sure. So there, there's some one last point about there's always the notion of return on investment and cost. That's a, that's a key factor for every organization. People don't have unlimited budgets and, and funds to do a lot of these types, types of things. But there's been a lot of debates and, and studies done about good code, secure coding techniques and, and bringing those best practices into the software development lifecycle. It may cost a little more to do that, but then on the other hand, building better software may have a huge savings on the other end because there will be fewer vulnerabilities that will will end up having to get fixed later on. And so I think that while there may be, it's kind of like going to the cloud environment. People think they can just take their current legacy applications and data sets and just throw them into the cloud. A lot of times you have to do some re-engineering of those mission business processes to take advantage of what the cloud offers. And that re-engineering uh, sometimes is a little bit of a cost bubble initially that you have to go through kind of climbing up that hill. And then the, the benefits on the downside are, are very, very large. So again, we have to look at all those factors and we have to make a credible argument why doing some of these things may be a little more expensive, but then in the long run, they're going to save a lot of money. They're going to protect your reputation, your assets, and allow you to be a, a company that can flourish in a very dangerous cyberspace going into the future. So again, I, I appreciate the time today and, and helping us get the word out to all of our customers. And uh, I'm looking forward to uh, hearing the podcast and maybe seeing uh, when it comes out in the article form. Yeah, no, this was great. You know, terrific. And I'll you know make sure that we link on the site to these standards and then some of the others that you mentioned as well. You know, I wasn't even aware of all the other stuff that you, you guys have had been putting out recently. So you know, that, that's part of, of diving into the space and ha- having guideposts like yourself to sort of show us around. So thank you so much. This was great. 